Hello, and welcome to this session on the good, bad, and ugly of evidence-informed decision-making in global health and development with Ruth Levine and Caitlin Tullock. Following a 25-minute exchange between Ruth and Caitlin, we'll move on to a live Q&A session where they will respond to your questions. You can submit questions in your name or anonymously using the box to the right-hand side of this video. You can also vote for your favorite questions to push them higher in the queue. We'll try to get through as many questions as we can. Then, after 15 minutes of questions, I'll bring the Q&A to an end, but that won't be the end of the session. To help you think through and apply the ideas you've heard, I'll be asking you to join a 20-minute icebreaker session where you'll have two speed meetings with other attendees to discuss your thoughts on the content. I'll explain how to do that when we get there. But now, I would like to introduce our speakers for this session. Ruth Levine is the Chief Executive Officer of ID Insight, a global advisory, data analytics, and research organization. She is a development economist and expert in international development, global health, and education. Ruth was previously a policy fellow at Stanford University, and from 2011 to 2019, she served as the Director of the Global Development and Population Program at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Before that, Dr. Levine led the development of USAID's evaluation policy and spent nearly a decade at the Center for Global Development in Washington, DC. Caitlin Tullock is the Associate Director for Best Use of Resources at the International Rescue Committee, where she leads a team assessing the cost effectiveness of humanitarian programs. Since 2015, this team has conducted 10 cost effectiveness analyses and more than 100 cost efficiency studies as well as creating new software to enable rapid field-based analyses. Prior to this, Caitlin worked at the World Bank in Indonesia and spent four years at the Poverty Action Lab where she managed their portfolio of cost-effectiveness analyses. Now, here's Ruth and Caitlin. Hi, I'm Ruth Levine. I'm the CEO of ID Insight, which is an organization that works in many parts of the world to provide decision makers with analytic support uh, so that they can make the best decisions. Those are decision makers in government, in nonprofits, and in funding agencies. And so the kinds of work we do range from multi-year rigorous impact evaluations to um, <clears throat> much uh, shorter engagements to set up a one-time, uh, do one-time data analysis to setting up monitoring systems for implementation. So we have a, a lot of experience with a wide range of uh, types of decisions, mostly in health, education, and social protection, as well as agriculture. Uh, before that, I worked at the Hewlett Foundation for eight years as the director of the Global Development and Population Program and before that, at USAID, leading the evaluation policy development, and before that, at the Center for Global Development. So I've been around this kind of evidenced policy space for quite some time. And what I found over the years observing, you know, how challenging it is not only to do high-quality work, but to have it used is that there is tremendous potential in the evaluation agenda and a whole lot of challenges ahead of us. And so Caitlin and I will be talking about that today. Um, 
You know, one of the things that I have uh, focused on a, a great deal in recent years is the intersection between the evidence agenda and our larger ambitions around social change. And in particular, what I've thought a fair amount about and, and tried to work on is kind of important issues around representation, voice, government accountability, and responsiveness to citizens, and how that can be reflected in the way we do our, our work um, collecting and analyzing data and undertaking evaluations. If we think about it, one of the core ways, one of the only ways that decision makers in government and in NGO headquarters actually hear from the people who are uh, affected by their decisions is through the data that we collect and convey on public opinions, on the conditions of people's lives, on how public and private programs affect them. And that work is hugely important in bringing the experiences of people who otherwise would not be heard from into public policymaking. So I really see the evaluation and monitoring agenda as really part and parcel of amplifying the voices of uh, people whose uh, lives and livelihoods we're seeking to improve. Caitlin, what about you? Um, well, thank you. That is a, a hard CV to follow, but... Um, my name is Caitlin Tullock. I am the Associate Director for Best Use of Resources, which is a, a fancy way of saying cost-effectiveness at the International Rescue Committee. Um, for those who aren't familiar, IRC is a humanitarian organization, work in something like 30 to 35 countries at any given time, providing uh, health, education, uh, civilian protection, a, a wide range of services for people affected by crisis and conflict. And prior to my work at the IRC, I also worked with the public financial management team uh, in World Bank Indonesia on public budgeting. I led the policy strategy for a scale-up of a evidence-based and hopefully evidence-generating um, education policy in the Dominican Republic. And I worked at the Poverty Action Lab at MIT for a number of years, leading their, post, uh, their portfolio of cost-effectiveness analyses. So there's definitely a trend there, which is uh, how do you spend money on things that you think are gonna have the most impact. Uh, with that in mind, I'm really excited to share with the audience today some examples, stories, challenges from the last five years now at the IRC. It's been a really interesting experience because you know, from my previous work, a lot of it was as an external evaluator where you're seeking to influence, to share data with, to understand the needs of decision makers in uh, Bapanas, the Indonesian government's uh, planning ministry, or uh, Miner, the, the Ministry of Education in the Dominican Republic. Being in-house at the IRC has really let us see how decisions come to be in a way that I think really speaks to the need for data at multiple points along that decision-making process. And that's been really exciting for me to get to be a part of and to see the constraints, I think, that Ruth referenced, um, you know, all of the challenges that people face in making decisions, all of the things that they're weighing and considering. 
but also then as we've tried to build um, structures and processes and more than anything relationships to feed the right data to the right people at the right time. Um, and so I'm really pleased to get to share some of that with the audience today. Ruth, I'd love to start um, just by kicking this off, having you telling us or me, I suppose, uh, what do you see as the main changes in the use of evidence uh, in kind of global health and development in the last five years? Yeah, wow, it's been a really a very exciting past five, eight, ten years. I, you know, I'm not 100% sure where the demarcation is, but I think a few of the changes that I've seen, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about this too, but I think a few of the changes that I've seen are um, that we've kind of grown up from focusing on what are the implications of a single study to what is the body of evidence telling us? You know, as more and more high-quality evaluations have been done, we've been able to see, well, does an intervention that works in Bangladesh also work in uh, Malawi, also work in Zambia? Uh, we've been able to see, does, does something that works at small scale in Kenya also work uh, at a national level in Kenya? And so I think that we've become maybe more sophisticated around not drawing too many inferences, uh, too many policy, making too many policy decisions based on a single study and instead really focusing on what does the um, aggregate evidence tell us. So that's one big change. I would say another is a real, really important advance in transparency and really a resetting of the norm around uh, making your data available for reanalysis, around being transparent about um, your methods, and being transparent about who's funding your work. I think all of those have really contributed to um, both higher quality and greater kind of perceived integrity of the work. Um, I also have seen a really great trend toward more research productivity and capacity in not only Latin America and South Asia, but many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. So there's just a kind of generation of new research from the um, uh, people who live and work and were raised and understand the context in which that research is being done. And that is a tremendously important positive development. And then uh, maybe the last thing that I'll mention is uh, an absolute explosion in the use of non-traditional data sources. Um, and so what do I mean by that? Uh, using satellite imagery and other uh, forms of remote imagery um, to look at geospatial information, um, using uh, cell tell information to look at patterns of mobility, um, using remote sensors uh, to look at uh, climate um, and environmental changes. So, you know, I think we're, learning, and there's a lot of excitement about um, using what's often referred to as big data to answer some questions uh, or at least generate some hypotheses that we might be able to, um, uh, that, that kind of give us insights that we don't get from 
the kind of smaller, more um, intense uh, evaluations that maybe we were focused on um, exclusively maybe 10 and 15 years ago. So those are some of the changes that I'm pretty excited about. Let me, um, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the same question. But also, Caitlin, uh, it would be great to hear what you think the kind of big wins have been in the use of evidence in global health and development, the ones that you've seen, the ones that inspire you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll start by saying that I, I think I agree with everything you said there, especially your, your first comment about the move away from weighting so much certainty onto individual studies and towards looking at the landscape of research from many angles with many methods on a topic and thinking about what that means for a specific decision for a specific decision maker in a particular place. I think that if you'd asked me kind of five years ago, you know, what the, what's the big win that we talk about when we think about global health and development, the one, at least for evaluation nerds, that would come up very often is PROGRESSA this kind of landmark, it was a conditional cash transfer program, uh, cash transfers conditional on children attending school or regular health visits in their kind of formative years. That really was the, the social safety net of the Mexican government starting in about 97 and 98. And it was evaluated um, very rigorously by IFPRI. There was a huge 110, I wanna say, page cost benefit analysis that I still go back to sometimes. Um, and so it was this big program, big evaluation, proven impact, proven cost benefit, you know, benefit cost ratio. And it has continued for many years since then. But I think in line with what you're saying about a shift towards understanding mechanisms and using multiple sources of data, the big wins that I think about really embody that use of data in the formation and kind of conception of new ways of reaching people and helping people meet their needs and then continuous use of that data on an ongoing basis. So I would think of somewhere maybe sticking in the in the cash lane, um, like give directly, where there is now a very good body of impact evaluation evidence showing the maybe not shocking results that giving people cash helps sustain their consumption and reduce negative coping mechanisms, but they have continued doing variation studies on this to say, how can we deliver this more efficiently? How can we reach these kinds of populations? And uncovering also, I think, why cash works, you know, beyond the very basic amount of, you know, if someone has cash, they can buy things, but what does it help people do? Is it meeting credit constraints or is it supporting consumption or is it preventing people from going into debt? And when you know those things, it becomes much easier to think about, is this the right tool in another environment? IRC, although we work in places very different than Western Kenya with its wonderful uh, mobile money network, we use a lot of that evidence to inform how we think about giving cash in emergencies. And more broadly, I think there's just this, this way of using data that the Give Directly folks embody really well and that I think is you're seeing in more different places, Div, um, this one particular branch of USAID that gives multi-stage funding for small pilots when you've got a promising idea and you're going to be required to collect a lot of data and see, you know, 
Is it being delivered properly? Are people using the thing you're giving out? These very basic measures. Then moving on to bigger evaluation. Is it showing impact in a pilot setting? And do we think that can be sustained before eventually getting on to big evaluation? But you're learning something at all of those different phases. And I, if, if we're allowed to toot our own horns a little bit, I think IRC has um, one of our biggest programs right now is called Ahlan SimSim. It's a partnership with Sesame Street, actually, Sesame Workshop, to bring early childhood development materials to children displaced by the Syrian conflict. And this was based as a concept off of the dense literature on highly cost-effective early childhood interventions in Jamaica, in the United States, in parts of Latin America. So we started there, but it's not simply a case of take the Jamaica study, take Reach Up and Learn and plop it down in um, you know, a, a refugee camp in Lebanon. Really, the first two years of this project have been about doing kind of local small-scale piloting, gathering data on what's working and what isn't, what people are or aren't responding to, how home visiting works in a refugee camp setting as compared to a formal settlement. From there, building to what's going to be scalable and using data as an element in our partnerships with the government. And then we're now moving into this final phase where we expect to also be doing bigger evaluations of this product that we've developed. But the ability to use data at all points in that cycle, I think really strengthens the final product. The other thing I'll mention, and I think we'll get into this more later, is you know, one of the challenges that evidence-based policy, what you might think of as effective altruism often faces is buy-in. And using data, developing data iteratively with partners who are gonna be the ones stuck with the bill of implementing at the end can be powerful for that as well. It has been, I would say, a very exciting five, eight years. Um, that's been a very kind of rosy picture. I would love to hear your thoughts on kind of what are the, the critiques of this agenda. There's been a lot of discussion. I think you were kind of alluding to this particular study in Kenya, um, you know, about the external validity of findings from randomized trials or a lack of attention to political economy of systems change. How do you think that has played out in parallel with this trend towards, you know, more data, um, more use of data and, and more diversity? Yeah, really, um, really good questions. So there is, you know, there's really no shortage of um, critiques, many of them really very pointed about the evidence agenda. And so, you know, the ones that come to mind when you ask that question are, just as you say, is, <clears throat> is a randomized control trial done in one place? Does it yield uh, information that can be applied to other places? is it worth the typically considerable amount of money and time? Uh, I think other questions have to do with if we are, if, if we're asking funders to use the results from randomized control trials as the source of information for their funding decisions, does that drive money to things that can be measured using that method? Um, which is certainly a subset of all important things in the world and not the universe of them. 
so I think those are a couple of uh, critiques that that come up is this external validity and then this, you know, are we like driving money toward intervention level um, priorities that can be measured using RCTs? So, you know, there's just reams and reams that have been written on this. There's also reams and reams that have been written on uh, the extent to which RCTs kind of reinforce an image of decision-making that is not very realistic, that it's removed from politics and uh, the kind of political economy of particular countries or districts. Um, and I think those critiques are interesting, they're valid, they're pushing the field ahead in important ways. But I think the kind of more important way to think about what's wrong or right in the field is to think, to what extent are we actually able to solve problems for decision makers, to answer questions that people who are faced with making resource allocation decisions or targeting decisions, or do I invest in uh, you know, health or education, or how do I scale up my secondary school program? All of those sorts of consequential decisions were the ones that you were talking about. Are we providing the decision support that can make them make decisions that have better impacts for real people in um, uh, living, living real lives? And so I think when you sort of ask that question, are we supporting decision makers? I think the answer is, well, the way to do that is to engage with them to understand what are the time, budget, and political constraints within which they're operating, and how can a whole set of methods be brought to bear to help them help inform those decisions. And some of those methods are going to be RCTs. There are definitely times when the right way to figure out the net impact of a program is through an RCT and there is time and uh, resources and it's an important enough question to dedicate that time and resources to answering it. There are many other times when what decision makers need is kind of basic descriptive information about the current conditions in which the population is living. There are times when what decision makers need is information that will help um, kind of design the implementation plan for a large-scale program. How can it be rolled out? Where should we prioritize first? How can we get on the um, ongoing feedback about whether that implementation is going well or not? So I'm sort of going on and on, but um, the the kind of main point I would say is that the more we can leave arguments about the fine points of methods and which one is better or worse aside in favor of looking at real world decision makers and the kind of support they need to make the best decisions, the better off we're going to be. And then the critiques can be around are we doing a good job of supporting decision makers and not are we doing a good job of generating robust evidence? So um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. You're faced with these, every, these sorts of trade-offs and questions every day and you have decision makers in your own, in IRC who are counting on you. Um, 
And, you know, I'd like to hear how you think about the, the trade-offs and, and the critiques that, that you've certainly heard about. And, you know, what you see as the agenda for uh, the organization's work and data and evidence going forward. Yeah. I mean, I think in many ways it is really just what you've described, a shift from a supply-side view of evaluation and data to a demand-led view. What do people want to know? to make the particular decisions that that person is faced with. And there are about seven that persons that need to be involved for this all to move in the right direction. A lot of, I think, what our priority is, is getting those all working together and understanding it. And in some ways, simply doing a better job of communicating about the idea that, you know, impact evaluations, randomized controlled trials are the least biased method of answering one very particular type of question. And that's not all the questions in the world. And that's not a lot of really important questions. But I I would agree with you that sometimes the focus on litigating that has obscured one of the most valuable things I think that comes out of many RCTs is the baseline study, which is a fabulous set of descriptive statistics about what's going on and who's getting services. So The kind of my favorite example from within the IRC, uh, we have been working for a number of years on an alternative protocol for treating severe acute malnutrition. This is children who are really severely malnourished um, and also moderate acute, which is slightly less malnourished, but still pretty malnourished children. Currently, they're treated separately, and we've been exploring the impact, but also the feasibility and the cost and the management structure for combining those two into one set of treatments through one set of facilities, we think it would have a lot of benefits. But getting this, you know, what we think is evidence-based and cost-effective thing taken up raises a huge number of questions. And we're trying to organize ourselves to answer those in a holistic fashion. So there's been an impact evaluation, an RCT, one site in Kenya, one site in South Sudan, that is answering that top level, like, Is this more effective at reducing acute malnutrition than the current standard? One of the really interesting things that comes out of some of the cost effectiveness analysis on that topic is that actually coverage rates, just how many children locally you get into treatment, is, I would say, the biggest determinant of cost effectiveness. And so it raises all of these questions way below the level of what intervention are you doing? You've got to say, okay, I may be doing my combined protocol in Niger, but if only 30% of my kids are showing up, my coverage is too low to be truly cost-effective. So then we're in the realm of performance data, uh, what we've called kind of monitoring for action, where you're monitoring coverage on a periodic basis. And when the coverage falls below some critical point, it's bad for cost-effectiveness. It also just means you're not reaching the children you're supposed to be reaching at a more fundamental level. And so that can be used to redeploy resources to get kids into treatment or to consider whether an alternative strategy is needed. That's where this kind of smaller scale piloting, tinkering, but continuing to gather data and reflect. There's not a counterfactual or a control group and and you're not going to publish the results in QJE, but it still works together with, I think, this broader understanding of what are we trying to do What's the theory of change behind it? Where might we be falling down? And what else can we do to be serving the people that we're trying to serve? And and I think you really viewing it from the supply side um, 
has kept us focused on what we know how to evaluate and what we like to do. But the demand side, thinking about that, you really see how this looks from the perspective of the Ministry of Health in Mali versus the WHO who has to make policy recommendations versus the IRC, which is a partner in certain countries, but not others, versus funders who are thinking about where to spend their money. We really need a lot of data to answer that whole set of questions. And, and it doesn't need to be kind of an ideological fistfight. Ideally, it's all pulling in the same direction. That is a great way to end. And I think we will uh, both, I'm guessing, look forward to a lively conversation. Thank you to Ruth and Caitlin for that talk. And we have had a number of questions submitted already. So please join me in welcoming live Ruth and Caitlin. And let's begin our Q&A with the first question. Could you guys comment on the randomista versus economic growth discussion that's been happening on the EA forum and was also touched upon in the talk by Hawk Hildebrandt? Ruth, do you want to kick us off with this one? <laughs> sure. I was gonna I was gonna invite you to do the same. So I'm sure <laughs> you can pick up and add to this. So unfortunately, I haven't been tuned into the EA forum, so I'm gonna make some guesses about what the nature is of the um, debate that's been going on between um, <clears throat> sort of looking at micro-level evidence through randomized control trials and uh, looking at larger macro phenomena through um, the lens of what is resulting in economic growth or stalling economic growth. And then, Caitlin, you can certainly welcome to pick up. So I guess what I would say is I think it's a false choice, um, and I'm trying not to punt here, but basically the, the policies that are related to the prospects that countries have for economic growth, what's going to lift their population out of poverty through expansion of the economy, through supporting some industries versus another versus others, through educating their population or not to a certain level, through various kinds of social investments. All of those are hugely, hugely important. What's important in the end is how those policies are implemented. And so what you have is the opportunity to use evidence from randomized control trials and many, many other sources to help governments figure out and learn as they go what, uh, how, to, how to design and implement the programs that, that are part of an economic growth strategy. So I think that it's quite unfortunate that there has been a kind of um, debate that's been fostered when the answer genuinely is you need both the macro policies and many of the kind of um, many of the insights that come from more micro level data collection and analysis to figure out how to implement some of the most important um, uh, government programs in health, in education, in social protection that contribute overall to economic growth. Caitlin, over to you. I, I feel like my only real, like, the most crystallized thought I have about this is entirely borrowed from, from Rachel Glenister, who we were talking about this issue one day, and she said, you know, yes, uh, 
economic growth is important, you know, kind of the, the micro level stuff we can learn is important, but why do we care about economic growth? It is because we think it helps improve people's standards of living. These are not either or, they're different and probably complementary pathways to the same thing. And so I think that speaks to your point, Ruth, that it's about what's the right tool to address the relevant constraint in a particular country. I do think it's exciting that RCTs have begun to move more into the realm of industrialization and firm size and organization and, and getting at some of these more market level questions. But in the end, I think they all have the same goal. And so they should be seen as complementary. Thank you both. Uh, moving on to the next question. How concerned are you about running into the McNamara fallacy? That is ignoring potentially highly valuable interventions because they're not easy to quantify. Um, I, I'm happy to start on this one and then Ruth, really curious to hear your thoughts as well. Um, in my experience, there are two elements of, of this problem we're describing. One is that the intervention itself is difficult to measure, quantify, or describe. And the other is that actually the outcome is hard to describe. Um, it has been only more recently there's been significant work on violence against women and girls. And that's come as we've had more validated measures of violence against women and girls that work across a lot of contexts. It's hard to measure the impact of something when you can't measure the outcome. And so I think that has meant that a lot of the early microempirical work was really focused on health and education outcomes that we we know how to measure. So over time, I see our ability to look at interventions which are aiming at those kinds of outcomes, less tangible, but very, very important outcomes as improving as our ability to measure those gets better. And so I think that we need to be cautious where we are right now, where the bulk of our evidence is disproportionately concentrated in areas for outcomes we know how to measure, and that should inform how certainly we know anything about different sectors. But I'm optimistic that that's getting better as people are taking their measurement toolbox into more different areas outside of just health and education. I do think there's a second question embedded there, which is sometimes the interventions themselves are hard to quantify and measure. Things like building social movements. I, I am more conflicted about that because it's, it's much harder to study that, not just as the, you know, the outcome difficult to measure, but the thing itself is diffuse. And to me, that relates to the, the it's important to notice that if the intervention itself is diffuse, it's hard to know what you would do with the evidence you generate. How would you go and replicate a thing when you don't know what the thing is? I, I think there is some room for missing those kinds of things if we focus too much on what can be you know, put in a log frame and measured in that way. I think there are enough really passionate people out there that they're not going to stop doing them because there's not an RCT about it. So I think that is a, a cause of greater concern for me, but I, I don't flatter myself or my community that like lack of evaluation attention is going to stop social movements from happening. Yeah, I totally agree with Caitlin. Let me just add a couple more thoughts that come to mind in this in this um, part of the discussion. You know, I think that one of the key um, elements of better practice and in the end, better results from all our work is that we have not done at a good job at all 
of engaging and learning from people who are experiencing the failure of the systems that we are trying to uh, work on and inform with the research and evaluation work that we do. And the engagement and the listening to people who are experiencing those system failures is important for a million reasons, but you know, two that are particularly relevant to this question, I think, is that they are they are the ones who can help um, kind of define what's important and what's not. Um, what's important to them? What is what is affecting their lives? Uh, and uh, so that's sort of separate from is it measurable or is it not? The question is, is it important to them? And the other is, um, you know, as Caitlin said, we're getting better at measuring things that are maybe not so obvious. You know, we're getting better at uh, measuring less tangible kinds of outcomes. And for that kind of um, measurement, clearly the engagement of people who have experience with those outcomes is absolutely essential. Um, and you know, should be at the center of that measurement agenda. So I, I think that, you know, we have a long way to go, but the question is not really, um, anyway, it's not really like, can we measure it or not? And are we missing something if we can't measure it? From my perspective, it's who, who's doing the measuring. Thank you. Next question. What's a bigger obstacle to progress in your opinion? Is it the ignorance or inability of policymakers to implement evidence-based approaches, or perhaps the unwillingness to do so due to electoral or other concerns on their part. Maybe I'll start this one and uh, Caitlin, uh, feel free to take over. Um, well, it depends on the setting, obviously. There's no like sweeping generalization that can be made. But on the point, uh, you know, on the kind of maybe the, the point of the question, which is why do elected officials not have the will to um, implement effective policies that can improve the health and well-being of their citizens? I think a key aspect is certainly that there's broken kind of relationships of accountability in many, many countries, and I would not exclude our own from that, between citizens and their governments. And so there's a real question about how do you strengthen that, um, that relationship of accountability? And actually, there's a lot of interesting evaluation work that's been done looking at different kinds of interventions. Um, and, um, you know, how can collective action make demands on governments so that they actually are responsive, typically quite separate from uh, kind of the, the ballot box. So I think that there are ways to strengthen civil society so that there's a greater ability to, to make that collective call on, uh, on government. Caitlin, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree there that a lot of this is about kind of misalignment in incentives. The one thing I would add is that I, I think that viewing that as like a pathological thing misses a lot of how governments actually work. You can't have everyone in an entire organization whose focus is solely on this one outcome. That's not how the private sector works. That's certainly not how the public sector works. And so if we wait for everyone to be focused only on 
health outcomes as measured in the SDGs, you know, for, for take up to happen. I think we're missing opportunities where alignment exists. There are places where I've, I've worked on scale-ups of evidence-based programs where you find the alignment between the electoral incentives. There was a movement to spend 4% of GDP on education in the Dominican Republic. There was a tension on that issue and we had an evidence-based policy and there was some fancy people attached to it that made it look really good electorally. There are really a lot of alignments, even within systems where the incentives are not perfect. And so I think one thing that's really helpful is to view ourselves not just as neutral producers of evidence about the thing that is objectively the right thing to do, but understanding what people value already in the system and where there's already a lot of confluence that can be built upon. I think we're almost out of time for additional questions, but let's just do one more uh, kind of quickly. Caitlin, I think this one would be more for you. To what extent has the IRC managed to overcome scope neglect in allocation of resources? And do you have an opinion on which organizations do the best or the worst in terms of uh, making sure they take scope into account? So I'll, I'll start maybe for the audience by giving my understanding of what scope neglect means, because we had a little quick discussion about it to make sure we were on the same page. But the idea that in assessing kind of the importance of working on a particular question that we neglect the size of the population that is affected by this issue versus any other issue. Um, this is a really hard issue for a humanitarian agency in particular. And, and I'm an economist. Um, I come from a fairly utilitarian background. The fact that a humanitarian agency chose to build a team of us inside shows that they were really interested in confronting this issue of where is kind of marginal benefit greatest. But especially for humanitarian agencies, the fundamental philosophy on which this is built is that if people are in need of assistance, they deserve to get it. And so I don't, what I've come to see as a kind of somewhat reformed utilitarian working with a lot of humanitarians is neither of the, like, it's neither one nor the other. I believe both are true. And the question is, where can you find the most middle ground between them? So what we've really pushed for is to say, okay, let's, as the IRC, define our goals. Who do we seek to serve and what are the outcomes we seek to get for them? And within that space, maybe we've decided within Sierra Leone, we think that health is an incredibly important outcome. There is a huge amount of opportunity for optimization in a very neoclassical sense, but you don't have to start from the framework of saying all need is equal and it, it doesn't matter where it happens or who it happens to. So I, th I think I have been really impressed by the way in which the IRC has taken on that issue. I don't think it has solved it. Um, I'm not sure any organization will really solve it because in many ways it's a very personal thing. It relates to your objective function and are you purely utilitarian or, I mean, you could get into like the ethics of this and are you Rawlsian or where do you sit? But those are very personal things. So I think understanding scope neglect within the framework of the value system that that organization espouses, I've been quite impressed with the IRC, but it is a journey. Um, and it's, it is a very personal one. Um, I'm not sure that's fully answered the question. I can mostly speak to the IRC's experience rather than others, but Ruth, I don't know if there's others who really rise to the, the top of your list. 
No, no, but now I'm uh, interested in the question. I'm going to be thinking about it as I go forward. So thanks to the person who asked that question, and I, um, back to uh, 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 back to you. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for this session for Q&A. So a big thank you to both Ruth Levine and Caitlin Tullock for joining us at this virtual EA Global event. A virtual round of applause, round of applause to both of you. Uh, that does conclude the Q&A portion of this session, but don't go away just yet because discussing new ideas with other people can be a great way to understand them better. So we're going to use the last 20 minutes of this session for a couple of short speed meetings with other attendees. If you check the session description below this video, you'll find a link to an icebreaker session where we're going to gather for those meetings. So please click on that link now and a new host will meet you on the other side. Thank you so much for watching.